0: Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verses 8 and following. It'll be on the screen as well. We are reading from the ESV. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sic- Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, "We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God." And they set up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The the God of glory appeared to our father Abram when he was in Mesopotamia, and he lived in Haran, and he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised, it, promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no others, who would ens- um, <laughs> though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for a hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. This is where it swings around. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt and God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Seshem and, and laid in the tomb that Abram had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Seshem. But as at the time of the promise, Junior, which God had granted to Abram, the people increased and, and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so, that they were not, so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians And he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, "Men." You are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. We became the father of two sons.
1: And we're just going through the book of Acts. And today we're looking at this speech of Stephen that kind of covers or touches at least three different chapters. That way I've broken it up into two readings. And I'm going to continue for us from chapter 7, verse 30. 7, verse 30. So Moses has kind of been rejected by the Israelites and he's run off. And uh, we're getting back to him where he is in Midian. Chapter 7 of Acts from verse 30, and I'm reading from the ESV. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Refan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except the apostles, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Let's pray. Father God, one of the key themes in this passage, and we've already sung about it, is your faithfulness. There are these stark contrasts between you, the faithful one, how you make promises and keep them, and and those, your people, who are so unfaithful. We just want to acknowledge that again this morning as we have through song, but come here to you as unfaithful people, unworthy of anything from you. Even those of us who might have been walking with Jesus for many years, we have been unfaithful this week. And we want to come to you and we want to plead that you would be faithful to us. Open up your word to us. Address us now. Speak hope into our lives. Show us realities that we might not have known of before, that we have forgotten or that we thought little of. Would you please hold uh, fast to your own promise, if you like, uh, where you say to us, man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. These are your words. There are many of them. And we pray that you would feed us now and teach us that we might understand this huge passage. We pray this all for your glory. You, the God of glory, may you be glorified through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you, have you ever watched the movie Vantage Point? Uh, it, it came out in 2008. The ratings wasn't actually that good. I think it got 6 out of 10 on some of the ratings. And it tells and retells the story... Uh, of the attempted assassination of the American president. Now, if you've watched it, I wonder if you were as confused as me in the beginning. So you start watching the movie, and the scene is set. There's a huge crowd of people that the president is about to address. And then you have the attempted assassination, and there's chaos. And before you know it, it's, it's very calm again, and there's excitement because the president is about to arrive, and there's lots of people, this flock of people that the president is about to address, and you think, what is going on? But we just went through this part of the movie, this has passed, and then and then the president speaks, and and, and and he almost dies, and there's chaos, and before you know it, it's calm again, and uh, you know, but, and so it goes. The president has just arrived again. And, and, and soon you realize, and maybe I should have read the kind of description of the movie before I started watching it, but soon you realize uh, that it's, this, it's the same event that's being retold from different people's perspectives. And maybe it's a bit disorientating at the start and every time a new person's perspective starts, but in the end, and as the movie goes on and on, uh, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And when I got to the end of the movie, I felt like I'd been on this roller coaster ride, like from, oh, I know what's going on. Oh, no, I don't know what's going on. Oh, I know what's going on. And you just go like that the whole way, from confusion to clarity and back to confusion. And then finally, there was crystal clarity as they caught the man who attempted the assassination, and the movie finishes. Now, as I've been working through this momentous passage this week, I've kind of been feeling that same roller coaster. I kind of go like, oh, I see a theme here. I know how this is working. Hey, I got th- oh, no, hold on, there's something else. Now how does how do these things oh no? Oh, and, and it just keeps going like this. And so what I thought we would do, and maybe you felt the same way as we were reading it, that there's so many themes, there's so many similarities and connections, and and you can get distracted by them. And so the question is, well, how does it all fit together? What is the point that Stephen, the guy who does this big speech, is trying to make? Well, why don't we look at it from three different views that I think will give us some clarity and help us make sense of it all? Maybe, I'm hoping, uh, as you feel at times, maybe a bit disorientated, uh, God willing, that you will have clarity at the end. So, are you ready for a roller coaster ride? We've started already. So, here are the three views that I want us to look at. I've put them in questions for us. What's going on in the book of Acts? There's a huge section. What's going on in the book of Acts? And then what's going on in God's grand plan? Because this is part of it. And then I want to finish where Stephen finishes and say, well, what's going on in your heart? I want to hear your view on the matter. So let's get stuck into it. The first one, what's going on in the book of Acts? And I'll put the answer up there for you so you don't get lost in all the details. What's going on in the book of Acts? Well, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus is keeping his promises and building his church. Now, this passage is huge in Acts as many themes that we've come across kind of come together climactically, And it closes one part of the book and it opens up another one. The, the part of the book that's being closed is the part that deals with the establishment and the growth of the church in Jerusalem. Everything that's happened so far has happened in Jerusalem. And that's part of Jesus' plan. And it's part of his promise to his disciples. Remember the key verse of Acts? This is what Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Notice all the will, this will happen. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now we've seen half of this verse fulfilled, haven't we? After Jesus said this, he, he ascended into heaven and, and, and he was taken up in the cloud. Um, In chapter 2 then, the Holy Spirit, He pours it out on His disciples, and they can speak different languages. It's kind of like a weird thing. People are a bit confused. But then Jesus uses those disciples to address the people that are in Jerusalem, that's come from all the corners of the globe for Pentecost. He uses His disciples to speak to these people in their own languages. And and Peter got up and he addressed the people. Uh, And 3,000 people were added to the number of Jesus' followers. Just like that, mega church planted. It's crazy. Another time at the temple, people, Peter is addressing people again, and more people believed in the good news of Jesus. And all of a sudden, there's 5,000 men alone who believe. And many more people, if you count the women and the children. And this church, man, it just seems to be going great. The the community that they're surrounded by uh, really looks upon them favorably. We see that in chapter 2. And people held them in high esteem. We see that in chapter 5. You could just imagine being part of it. Wouldn't it be great of being part of such a church? And, oh, man, you can just enjoy it, relax, and enjoy this amazing movement. But Jesus had other plans. Uh, And uh, and surely I should probably say he hadn't forgotten about his plan. And so through Stephen's speech and the stoning of him at the end, uh, Jesus uh, takes his followers to Judea and Samaria as he promised. Look there at the end of our passage. So this is Acts chapter 8 verse 1. As I mentioned references, you have to listen very carefully because it could be in chapter 6 or 7 or 8. So chapter 8 verse 1, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. There's Jerusalem, phase one. And And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Phase two, except the apostles. You see, Jesus is keeping his promises. And he's building his church. He said there'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And now his witnesses are in Judea and Samaria. Now, this should give us so much comfort and confidence, friends. You see, Jesus is risen and He's reigning despite how things might look. You see, when when Stephen boldly witnesses about Jesus as he was was instructed to and he prayed for boldness together with the other disciples, he gets stoned, he gets killed. And you think, hold on, I thought Jesus wants us to witness to Him. I thought Jesus was building His church, not breaking it down. But He is building His church, and He wants us to witness to Him, even when it gets difficult, even when it gets costly, or even deadly. And we love the wonderful thing about King Jesus here. You see, He can take any threat or attack on the church, and He can use it to advance His own plans and purposes. Is there anyone, maybe there's a movie or something where a bullet comes to someone and they manage to turn it around. Is it the Matrix? And then uses it to attack other people. That's kind of what Jesus does as people try and attack his church. Let that sink in for you, dear Christian. Now, like every hardship that you face as an individual or maybe as a family or even us as a church is not wasted. Those times are not out of Jesus' control. Those times are not too difficult for Him to to use or too hard for Him to get His hands around it and do something with it. See, Jesus will use it to further His kingdom, either deep down into our cause or into the lives of other people around us. And so the risen and the reigning Lord Jesus is keeping His promises and building His church, despite how it might look or feel even when good people are murdered for their faith, as is the case still in many countries actually today. So what I was wondering is, what difficulties are you experiencing that you thought is out of Jesus' control? What struggles have you thought, oh my goodness, can I just get on with life? This is such a waste of my time. I don't know how this is helping me in my walk with God. If you love and follow the Jesus that we find here in Acts... Well, no struggle or difficulty is a waste, is it? Maybe you're in a difficult marriage with a spouse that hates Jesus and it's hard. Maybe you're being bullied at school because of your faith. Maybe you've missed work promotions because you've witnessed to Jesus in your words and in your actions. Maybe you're in a difficult stage with your children and you can't see the end in sight. Maybe you're sick, in pain all the time, in and out of hospital surgery, maybe even a wheelchair. None of these things are a waste with Jesus by your side. Isn't that great news? He promises to be with you, to provide for you, to make you flourish as you trust in Him. He did it here for Stephen, even though he died. Did you see how wonderfully he saw Jesus and he's going to be with Him? And he did it for his church as the church spread and disciples grew in number. And he can do it for you. And he can do it for us as his church too. So that's the first view. What's going on in the book of Acts? The risen and the reigning Lord Jesus is keeping his promises and building his church. The second one is this. What's going on in God's grand plan? So we're zooming out. Imagine Google, you know, the maps and you go, what's going on in God's grand plan? Well, a new ruler and a rescuer of God's people has been raised. You see, what's very clear by the end of our passage is that the Jewish leaders, they don't see these followers of Jesus as part of of them. So much so that they take Stephen outside of the city and they stone him. Sounds very familiar. Who else did they take out of the city and kill? A tension that's been building under the surface has finally come up to the surface and is at breaking point. Now, what's the tension? Well, it it kind of tells us there in chapter 6, verse 13, when they accuse Stephen. Look at what they say. And they set up false witnesses. This is what religious people have to do. They have to do things falsely, underhanded ways. They're not people of the truth. But anyway, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So they accuse Stephen of speaking against the law and the temple. And they summarize it a bit earlier in chapter 11 as speaking against Moses and God. And Stephen defends his view of the law and the temple. That's what we've got to understand as, as we go through this speech with all these details. But also, he brings in another theme. Oh my goodness, he's so smart. He brings in another theme that he actually then in the end uses to grill them on. And I'll show it to you in a minute. This third theme is about God's chosen ruler and rescuer. Let me, let me show you. This is really exciting. And I might use a bit of humor at times here just to kind of show you what Stephen is sneakily trying to do as he does this speech. So he starts in chapter 7 verse 2 with Abraham, the father of Judaism. Now you have to start there if you're going to talk to Jews. They thought of themselves as Abraham's children, you know. But would you believe it? Abraham is not even in the promised land. He's in Mesopotamia. And maybe, even more shockingly, God manages to reach him there. (laughs) You know, Stephen is saying gently, hey guys, God's not just at work in the temple. God's not just at work in in this place, in this land. And with Abraham, everything seems to go swimmingly. and he, He had even, whoa, Abraham had no laws to follow? Hmm. He just simply listened to the God of glory, as we see there in chapter 7, verse 2. Remember that title because it comes up again at the end. Now next, Stephen turns to Joseph in chapter 7, verse 19 to 16. And Joseph's brothers are jealous of him, and they sold him into Egypt. Oh, golly, Well, another guy that's not in the promised land. You know, how's God going to help this guy? There's no hope. He's lost to the world, right, guys? Because God can't work in the... In the temple and outside of the promised land. <gasps> Did I read that right in verse 9? God went with him? Oh, wow, sorry. But that, this is the attitude, I think, of Stephen. Look, as the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And he rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. God was with Joseph in Egypt. And not only that, God blessed him and he ended up being the ruler of Egypt and all of Pharaoh's house. Remember those uh, dreams that Joseph had in in Genesis 37? And one of them was Joseph and his brothers and they're in the grain field. They used to have a farm and um, they're gathering grain and binding it. And all of a sudden, Joseph's sheaf of grain stands up and all his brother's sheaves of grain come towards his and bow down before him. And and when Joseph told his brothers of this dream that he had, this is what they said in Genesis 37. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more. They already hated him because he had a special coat that his dad gave him. Now they hated him even more because of his dreams. And look at that, and for his words. You see, in Joseph's words, God was speaking to his brothers and his family. But they rejected it, and Stephen is saying, "Hey, I know there was no law when all of this happened, but the little that God did speak to them, they ignored and In the end, Joseph did rule over them and 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 he rescued them from starvation and so here Stephen is bringing in this third theme, I hope you see it he 's not only talking about the law and the land anymore he's starting to show." That every time God seems to be picking a ruler, the people reject Him. And even when the people reject Him, God doesn't go, Oh, they don't like Him, I better find another one. God still uses Him. Did you see that? And so we see the same theme, actually, with Moses, who Stephen turns to next. Have a look there, chapter 7, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, there's a theme saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, you know, when he was when he was helping his brothers? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. You see, Stephen keeps mentioning this third theme that he's bringing up about Israel rejecting God's ruler, but God's still sending him anyway and using him to fulfill his purposes. But he hasn't forgotten about making his defense of the law and the land. Look there, chapter 7, verse 36 he brings it up again so he talks about Moses again this man led them out performing wonders and signs this is what Stephen was doing as well by the way and all the other apostles and he was doing them in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years you see Moses did wonders and signs as God's ruler and redeemer and all the the ones that he speaks about here that are mentioned are done outside of the promised land again in Egypt At the Red Sea and in the wilderness. Again, Stephen is saying, hey guys, God's not limited to a particular place, to the land of the Jews or the temple. And what about the law? What does he say about that? I mean, the beauty of this this thing is how he keeps answering their questions, but also brings in new things, and then he smashes them at the end, which we'll get to in a minute. Look there, chapter 7, verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. We've looked at that in another part. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. When it comes to Moses and the law, Stephen says, hey, what, what, what Moses gave us was good. It was passed on by him, from God, by the angel. These were God's living word to his people. So he ticks that off. He says, oh man, yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys. But then he also sneaks something in there, doesn't he? He also brings in this theme again. Stephen reminds him that as Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law, they rejected him as their ruler. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt when they made this golden calf and they started worshiping it. You see, the Jewish council, because as I'm thinking as he's saying this, what's he saying? What are they thinking? The Jewish council could argue, hey, we can catch you here on a technicality, Stephen. So um, Moses was still up on the mountain. He hadn't bring the law down yet. So, you know, the people are sinning, but it's because the law hasn't come yet. But Stephen quotes there. Did you see there in chapter 7, verse 42, he quotes from the Old Testament from Amos, and he shows that they did this, not just that day, but for the next 40 years in the wilderness. And the council could argue again and say, hey, 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 well, you know, things were different then. It's not like it is now. They didn't have the temple with God's presence. So, if if you have the law and the, you have to have both. You have to law and the temple, and then things will be fine. But again, Stephen is so sharp, and he reminds them that they had the tent of meeting. They built it, just as God told Moses exactly, and His presence was with them. Stephen also, he just does so many digs. He also reminds them that the idea of the temple wasn't even God's idea. It was the idea of a man to do that. And he quotes Isaiah 66 there, where he says, where God makes it very clear that He made everything and, and He is everywhere and nothing that any human being can create can contain Him. So, What is Stephen doing in this speech? That's a big question, isn't it? Like how many, even if you read through the speech four or five times and you think, I'm going to get clarity, any second, any second. What's the big thing that he's doing through the speech? There's a lot of details, but what's the point? Ultimately, I think Stephen shows very clearly that even when God's people had his law and the tabernacle, they still disobeyed him and they still rejected his ruler and the way that he was trying to lead them. And what Stephen does is he shows, hey, hey guys, the problem is not with my view of the law or the temple. The problem is with your hearts. And you think, what what are these guys thinking? eh?" I think at some point during the speech, someone in the group must have sat there and thought, man, when I was teaching in kids ministry, this guy didn't seem to learn anything. Look at his speech. He's doing well now. But at this point, they probably went, whoa, whoa, Stephen, hold on. We've asked you to come in here so that we can attack you. You're meant to defend yourself, and now you're attacking us? That's what he does, isn't it? He says, their fathers turned their backs on Egypt, uh, turned their back to Egypt in their hearts and worshipped handmade things, and they are doing the same. Look there chapter 7, verse 51. This is a key passage where he drives in the knife into their hearts, if you like. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Wow. Do you see also how he distanced himself from them? The whole time he's saying, our fathers did this, oh, oh, yeah, and our fathers, and all of a sudden he says, your fathers, you did this. Because he's responded to Jesus in a way that they haven't. Now, do you remember the, the movie Vantage Point that I started the sermon with? On on the advertising sign, they've got these words that says, um, eight strangers, eight points of view, one truth. So I was wondering, you know, we've looked at a couple of views. What's the one truth? And lots of details. What's the one truth that Stephen's speech shares with us? There are many ways you can view it, just like the movie. But what's the one truth? Well, have a look there at chapter 7, verse thirty. Uh, 7 verse 55. This is it, I think. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, the one truth is that Jesus is the new ruler and rescuer of God's people. And he's been raised to be there by God. He's the one standing next to the God of glory. Did you see that? Remember how I told you to think to put that in your mind? The, the God of glory who appeared to Abraham. He's standing next to him. He, and like Joseph, he died because he's, the big brothers of Israel was jealous of him. But God rose him up again. And he set him up as the ruler over his brothers. And like Moses, he's left. And he will come back, even though people rejected him. God will send him back as ruler and rescuer. You see, Jesus standing as the Son of Man at God's right hand is obviously a picture of a passage that's famous to Jews, and that's Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is brought to God on a cloud and he is given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the Jesus that's been raised up as the new ruler of God's people. And obviously Stephen has shared of Joseph and Moses' rejection so that this Jewish council won't make the same mistake again. He's saying, guys, even even if you were to reject Jesus, God is still going to use him. He's going to come back. This is not going to thwart God's plans. So watch out. And so Stephen's last words of this kind of wonderful vision of Jesus was to invite the people that he has come from, of his birth, to receive um, God's blessings in this new ruler, Jesus. And where Stephen finished is where I want us to finish, which gets us to the last point of view of the speech, and that's your view. What's going on in your heart? Resistance or acceptance? And I can't actually give an answer to that at the end of this, But let's have a look at it. You see, the problem of the heart that Stephen raised is not only a Jewish problem. It's a human problem. I don't care where you're from, what race you're from, where you're born. This is all of us, without exception. Ultimately, we don't like being told what to do. You just have to have kids, and you see that all the time. And we don't grow out of it. (laughs) It just looks different, and we often hide it. We want to do our own will. We want to occupy the thrones of our own hearts. Look at again how Stephen explains it in 751. He calls them stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at each of these briefly, okay? This is the main application of today's sermon. And so I want you to honestly reflect in your heart where you sit with Jesus on these things? Have you rejected him or accepted him? And I'm not just talking about a once-off thing. I'm talking about just this morning, yesterday, the last week, just all the time. Okay, so let's look at those things. He calls them stiff-necked people. And what's interesting is this is what God calls the Israelites right after they worship the golden calf in Exodus 32. God says, they don't want to be led by me, Moses. They want to be led by this lifeless, voiceless, powerless statue. And really, when you look at a God like that that you want to lead, you just want to lead yourself. You want to follow your own voice. You want to follow your own will and do your own thing. Now, I don't know if you've ever done horse riding. Uh, On the farm, we used to do it often, especially in the school holidays. And the main way you control a horse is by controlling its head, right? So you turn the head to the right and turns right and to the left and goes left. Um, And you can do all sorts of things with horses, actually. If you have a great relationship with a horse, and I'm guessing this is the same with many animals, but a horse in particular is what I'm thinking of, and they trust you, they will let you lead them. You can lead it. You can do all sorts of things with them. It's amazing seeing some of the things that people do with them. On the other hand, if a horse doesn't trust you, it really stiffens its necks and it doesn't let you move it. And then there's a fight that happens that I've been through where, where they just kick you off and you, you end up getting hurt. Uh, but that's kind of the image that I've got when I see a stiff-necked people, which, you know, like you can either stiffen your neck and you know, I'm doing my own thing, you're not leading me, or you can build trust and relationship and let Jesus lead you. And which one are you when it comes to Jesus leading you? Are you humble and open to people who are close to you? telling you that, hey, I, I think this needs to change so that you can become more like Jesus? Or, or are you like some of those people, and I've heard this a few times, hey, hey, that's just, that's just how I am. You know, I can't change. Are you one of those people you hear people say, oh, that's, <laughs> that's just so-and-so. You know, He'll just always be like that. He'll just always do that. You know, can, can you really not change? So, so Jesus, the one that's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, is not powerful enough to change you? Wow, you must have a very small view of him or you might not understand that really well. Or is it just that maybe you really don't want to be changed? You just want to do your own thing. Are you stiff-necked like the Israelites? So what about the second one? He says that they are uncircumcised in heart. This language is from Leviticus 26 and it's used for people who cannot admit their sin. They cannot admit when they've done something wrong. They they can't acknowledge when they've displeased God. And in fact, they're just full of pride. Now, on the other hand, Christians, as we see in the Bible, are open to confessing their sins. I mean, it, it still doesn't come natural and it's not easy, but we desire to do it because we are people of the light. We know that keeping things in the dark hides our sins from Jesus. And it's only when we bring it into the light that he can deal with it. And as Christians, we should be the quickest people on the planet to, to be open about when we've sinned and when we've wronged each other, when we've, when we've done things contrary to God's will, because we know that Jesus has already dealt with it. Was it recently when we were looking at how while we were sinners, Christ died for us? He's dealt with all of our sins and our failings. We know that where we confess, His grace is just abundantly poured upon us, uh, forgiving us, restoring relationships, healing people. And so do you have a circumcised heart that's open to your failings and just, you know, people find you almost a bit too open? (laughs) Are you like that or are you filled with pride? And unable to see the log in your own eye, like the Bible says, but you're really good at pointing out the speck in other people's eyes. That's what this is talking about. Uncircumcised in heart. Where's your heart at? What about the third thing that Stephen says of them? He also says they're uncircumcised in ears. And and this is not simply saying, oh, they listen or they don't listen. It's that. But it actually gets down to the reasons of why we listen or we don't. In Jeremiah 6, God says that his people aren't listening to him. Why? Well, because they take no pleasure in his word. For them, God's word was not something of of great beauty and value, but something to be scorned at. Ah. So how do you treat God's word? Not just in the Bible, but God's word made flesh in the man Jesus. Do you love listening to him? Is he just your greatest treasure? And does it just give you amazing and overwhelming joy when you hear him and even obey him when it's difficult? And I reckon it's fair to say here that Stephen didn't have, an uncirc- didn't have uncircumcised ears. Don't you just marvel at this huge speech that he's just given on the spot? No notes. He's just doing his life. All of a sudden he gets dragged in front of the council. He knew his Bible very well. And he saw how it ultimately pointed to the Lord Jesus. And he loved Jesus. He loved his word and he listened to him. uh, And by bearing witness to him, even if it meant he was going to get killed. It gave him, listen to this, let this sink in for you. It gave Stephen more joy uh, to uh, be obedient to Jesus and witnessing to him and dying than if he are to scorn Jesus and stay alive. He loved Jesus more than his own life. Is that what you are like? Do you like Stephen? Fourthly and lastly, the other thing that Stephen accuses them of is resisting the Holy Spirit. See, because we have a heart problem, nothing that remains outside of us will ultimately fix us. I know they say, you know, people wear their heart on their sleeve, but it's not outside of them. It's in here. And so our problem is internal, not external. And the law and the temple did not stop Israel rejecting God's rulers because it remained outside of them. It wasn't in here. But the risen and the reigning Lord Jesus, He wants to pour out His Spirit upon us to dwell inside of us. He wants to come and fix our problem. He wants to come and He wants to give us new hearts and empower us to fight and overcome sin and evil in our lives. And Jesus is giving this to us freely as we trust Him. There's nothing we have to do. He's done everything for us. We simply accept what He's done for us already and we rejoice in it and we rest in it, as that song said right at the beginning as we sang. And we're thankful. And so really, ultimately it comes down to this. Are you resisting the Holy Spirit or not? I mean, you could probably make that the title of the sermon. Resisting the Holy Spirit. Because if we embrace and accept the Holy Spirit, He will help us take pleasure in God's Word and see it for what it is, as valuable, uh, and as, as giving us much joy when we follow it. This spirit will also convict us of sin and help us to open up our hearts and remind us again and again that forgiveness is, on, is just freely available for the sins that we raise. God's not surprised when you go, oh, I did this thing. He knew about it already. And it's this spirit that will humble us to not want our own way and stubbornly just keep to a certain path, the same path that humanity has taken over and over again that's caused so much hurt and damage. No, He will give us a deep trust in Jesus as we see His beauty, as we see Him the way that Stephen saw Him when he looked up, filled with the Spirit, as the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. And He will help us to let Him lead us. And so, I just want to finish with that question again. Are you resisting the Holy Spirit of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus who's standing right now at the right hand of the Father of glory? It's one of the biggest questions that we have to answer in our lives. We have to do it every day. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are working right now. You have been working for the last however long this has been going. And we pray that you would lead us. We pray that you would soften our hearts to see our sin and to be honest and humble about it. We pray that you would give us a love and a joy for the words that we have just heard. And above all, we pray that you would help us see Jesus the way that Stephen did, where he was just so filled with joy that he set his eyes on him in the face of death and nothing could stop him. He was filled with the Spirit full of grace and power, loving your word, being open about the past and being ready to be led by you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, please work in us. We, we want to accept you and we want to embrace you and want you to lead us. And we know that doesn't look like speaking in tongues and doing all sorts of weird miracles and things. It's really simple. It's about how we see and respond to the Lord Jesus. That is what it looks like to embrace you. May we do that. May we have the same view of Jesus, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus as Stephen. And will you continue to grow our church and reach the lost and build us as we trust in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.